Amen. That was beautiful, wasn't it? A beautiful song, beautiful children, even a beautiful leader. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was wonderful. I love that song. I love that prayer. I just love that part. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, uh, did not know something, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me by, through the gospel of your son. And that's through it. That's the power of the gospel. Amen. I pray that the Lord has worked upon your heart, and I pray that you are able to look back in your life and see that you had no taste for heaven's joys. You had no, no desire to honor God or to serve God or to, to love God, and, and you realize that at some point, whether you can pinpoint the day or, or at some point, some time over some span, uh, the Lord, his spirit gave you life and opened up his word to you. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today we continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount, and we examine, today we're going to examine the type of impact believers ought to have and will have upon our culture. So I'm really looking forward to bringing this text to you. Uh, we just came off the Beatitudes this past week, and we're going into uh, the next verse as Jesus continues in his sermon. Uh, one thing to always remember on, on the Sermon on the Mount is more than likely Jesus probably preached more than what's in here. Okay, If you read the Sermon on the Mount straight through, it's, it's, a, it's a short time period, but um, there is a purpose and there's a function for every scripture, every text, every portion. And what the Beatitudes did, it laid the foundation. If you weren't with us through those studies, the Beatitudes laid the foundation on Jesus uh, describing a true believer. There were no commandments in the Beatitudes. All he did was he described what a true believer looks like. And there was a progression and there was an ongoing, uh, each Beatitude built upon each other. Uh, and Jesus is announcing the kingdom of heaven and who is in the kingdom of heaven. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he closes the loop and, and everything in between described from beginning to the end um, how God makes a believer, the outworking of the believer, and then the consequences of being a believer uh, when persecution comes as we are promised to have uh, when we are walking in the spirit of God. When we're walking in godliness and righteousness and truth, uh, we're promised persecution. Uh, but for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's look at our text. I'm going to look at, I'm going to read Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. And we're really just going to focus in on verse 13 today. Uh, but to have verse 14 and 16 to have the greater context of what Jesus is talking about here. So hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
Again, God, that we could gather and sing praises. God, you are worthy, as the song said, you are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. And Father, now I pray that you would help us to praise you by heeding the words of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, that your words would go forth. And God, that it would equip us and it would encourage us, Father, uh, in our modern culture, God, that is doing everything it can, God, to, to discredit you, to um, dethrone you if they even could, but in the midst of our culture that hates truth, that hates you. Help us, God, and, and encourage us, Father, to, to do the will of, of our Lord and Savior, to be salt and light in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things we often hear from the non-believing world is how religion, and specifically how Christianity, has, is not only a negative, has been the reason for many of the problems in the world. Have you ever heard that from the unbelieving world? That your religion and Christianity is the source of the problems in this world, and it hasn't done any good in this world. Has anybody ever heard some, some sort of form like that? You know, they'll bring up things like, well, the Crusades and all of the, the killings in the Crusades, or even the Holocaust is brought up, and Adolf Hitler, he was a Christian, right? Or if you look at the Inquisition, which the Inquisition is a broad term, and there are many different Inquisitions, but the Inquisition started in the 12th century and actually went all the way up to the 1800s, where you had whether it was the Spanish inquiry, whether it was the Roman inqu uh, um, uh, Catholic in uh, Inquisition, you had thousands of people that were being killed because they weren't believing in the right thing. Okay? What about slavery? You see that brought up. You know, the Christianity and religion is the, the source and the root of slavery because, after all, it's in the Bible. Here in America, you'll hear things like the Salem witchcraft trials, right? That was all Christianity and you Christians and religion is the reason why we have so much bad in the world. And oftentimes, I think we can fall into the trap, and as many believers fall into the trap, is that we try to make excuses for that and try to brush that off and say, well, you know, those are just, you know, those are the bad Christians, and don't, don't pay attention to that. Just focus on Jesus and, 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 and don't worry about all the bad stuff. Don't look at what the the church is doing. You know, there was a movement some years back uh, to totally just get rid of the church. And it's like, I love Jesus, hate the church. Anybody remember that? Love Jesus, hate the church, right? And just get rid of the church. And that was all bad people. Just focus on Jesus. You know, we're not perfect. The church isn't perfect. Uh, and instead of making excuses, you know, I think first we need to refute a lot of these arguments because they're very refutable. Okay, uh, and, and on the second hand, our text today points us to the exact opposite of what non-believers claim Christianity is or Christianity has done in the past. Today, our text shows that Christianity should, should and will make a positive impact in the world, a positive impact in society, a positive impact in the culture. Well, Christianity today, I believe, in many ways has become ineffectual, inept, and useless. You know, on the one hand, you have apostate liberal churches that are impacting the culture for the 
kingdom of darkness, are they not? You have apostate, liberal, and I, I say the word churches used loosely, who advocate for such atrocities uh, like abortion, like same-sex marriage, and the like. You know, on the other hand, you have churches that have the true gospel of faith in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. But many I've seen render themselves inept by shutting themselves inside the four walls of the church and encouraging their congregants to do the same, either directly or indirectly, passively, by the way they teach or not teach. And then on the other hand, you have churches that they may have the true gospel or an obscured version of the true gospel that are more impacted by the culture and flow with the ways of the culture and conform themselves to where the culture is going than they do impacting the culture for the kingdom of heaven. Instead of vice versa and impacting the culture. So what is our role as a Christian or as a church? What is the right approach in regards to the intersection of Christianity and the culture? Can we impact the culture for good without falling into having a mere social gospel? Because we don't want that either. So I believe this text here, in its context, helps answer some of those questions. So let's look at our verse. Today we're just going to look at verse 13, and this is the idea of being salt. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Well, as I, as I mentioned, Jesus concludes his opening portion of the sermon with describing the true nature of a Christian in the Beatitudes. And now he moves to describe the true Christian's place in the world. All right, so you have the Beatitudes, that's the true Christian. Now he's moving again. Now he's telling us that true Christian, here is what their place is to be in the world by being salt and by being light. In the Beatitudes, as Jesus describes the true nature of a Christian, he also describes the true elements of a Christian. He, tr he describes what, what true Christianity is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt. That's a true element of Christianity. Blessed are those who mourn because they realize that they have nothing to offer God. They mourn over their sin, and they mourn because they know that they've displeased a righteous and holy God. And they become meek people, verse 5, gentle people. And those, in verse 6, they hunger and thirst for righteousness because God has made them a new creature. And now they have different desires. That is a true element of Christianity. And they become merciful, verse 7, because they've experienced the mercy of God. And then they have a devotion for Christ. Verse 8, they have purity in heart, not that they're perfect, but they have one single-mindedness to obey Christ at all costs. They don't have a divided heart. They have a single devotion to Christ. And those same Christians are peacemakers. They go out and they make people have peace with God by preaching the gospel, and they seek all that they can do to have peace amongst 
the people around them. That's a true element, again, of Christianity. And the consequence of Christianity, as I preached last week, is that those people who are walking in the true elements of Christianity are persecuted because they come face-to-face with a world who hates truth, face-to-face with a world that wants to earn their way to heaven, and thus they become persecuted for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of Christ. Now Jesus moves on and takes those, those essential elements and how those essential elements are to impact the world. Well, if you've heard any sermons on this verse... You are the salt of the earth. Most of the ones I've heard in the past are something like this. Salt makes you thirsty. So we should go out and we should make the world thirst for Christ. We should give non-believers a thirst to know more. And a little salt goes a long way, like your table salt, right? A little bit of salt goes a long way. You put too much salt, it's too bitter. So don't be too much, right? Don't, don't give them too much because then you're just going to leave them bitter, Anybody other than me just heard that's usually the brunt of the sermon on this text? While that idea can be true and we can make people thirst for Christ, I believe that this text goes much deeper than that. And I believe just stopping there does the text a disservice. To understand this text, we must go back to the original audience and understand what salt meant then. As Jesus uses this illustration of being salt in the world. So back in first century Palestine, salt was a very, very valuable commodity. It was traded. In the Roman Empire, salt was used as actual form of payment to their soldiers. It it was used to season foods, but not everybody had access to salt because, as I mentioned, it's a very expensive and valuable Uh, commodity Uh, it was used as a preservative okay so children if you didn't know this they didn't have refrigerators back then so they couldn't just go and open the fridge and get a snack to eat at any point of the day and if you were to take your household and take everything out of the fridge that's in there how long would it last it wouldn't last that long take all those meats out of the freezer how long would those meats last Salt is used as a natural preservative from keeping foods and meats specifically, uh, keep them from decaying and rotting. So it was used as a preservative. The practice of using salt to preserve meat can be traced back well before 1000 BC. It was often used as salt penetrated the meat and then they would hang the meat out to dry and that would help act and, and as a preservative so that meat would last uh, much longer than it would uh, if it wasn't used. Salt also had a deep history among the Jews. Salt was used in religious worship. It was often used and commanded by God to be used along with offerings. If you didn't know that, Leviticus 2.13 says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. So the salt of the covenant of your God shall be shall not be lacking from your grain offering with all of your offerings you shall offer salt okay salt was also associated to the jews with purity in second kings chapter 2 
verse 20 and 21, he said, just God speaking, he says, bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. No, excuse me, this wasn't God speaking. They brought it to him, and he went out to the springs of the water and threw salt on it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from their death or unfruitfulness any longer. I believe this was Elisha. So you had this water, and God used this, this um, idea of the salt purifying the water. Salt was also associated with loyalty, fidelity, and durability. Durability, because salt in its basic form, in its purest form, will never lose its effectiveness. Sodium chloride, it's an ionic compound of sodium and chloride, and it will never lose its effectiveness. So it was associated with durability. If you look at Numbers 18 and uh, verse 19, the Lord speaking to Aaron says this, All the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. God gives the the priestly line of Aaron, a covenant of salt. Why does he call it a covenant of salt? In a similar terminology, in Second Chronicles 13, uh, during the Civil War, where King Abijah is in war with King Jeroboam of Israel, King Abijah says this to Jeroboam and all of Israel, it says, Second Chronicles 13.5, do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? So I think we read through our Bibles and we just kind of gloss over that, right? Why is it used, why is that terminology used there? Covenant of salt, both to the priestly line of Aaron and then Abijah talking about the covenant that was made forever as a covenant of salt. Well, salt represented God's unfailing love and his fidelity to his people, Israel. Because salt in, in early biblical times was known as a commodity that had durability, it had value, it had long-lasting. It was, a, it, was a, uh, it was, again, it was known to as fidelity, loyalty, and the like. So take that context of what salt meant to them then. It means a lot different to us today, doesn't it? Salt to us today, just, hey, where's the salt? Can you pass the salt? Uh, that's what it means to us today, but not every first century family had table salt at their disposal to just sprinkle a little salt on their food. So take the context of salt to the Jews and apply it to the text. And that's one of the uh, principles of hermeneutics. When you're reading your Bible and you're interpreting the Bible, you have, to, you have to first understand what the original writer meant to say. What was he communicating to the original audience? Okay? So what was Matthew communicating to the Jews, which was the primary audience of Matthew, 
And even more importantly, what was Jesus, who wrote, who said these words, what was Jesus trying to communicate to the people who were listening? So take that first century context of salt, and now look at the text where he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. See, I believe it's much more than just sprinkling a little salt to make people thirsty for Jesus. I see this is the overarching truth of the text, is that since we have been made salt of the earth, or since we're salt of the earth, we must take the essential elements of Christianity outside the four walls of the church. In other words, the church, which again is you and I, we are the church, okay? I'm not talking about local church, I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ, you and I, Christians, you and I are to penetrate the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to penetrate the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what salt did, and that's what salt meant to the first century Jews, is it, it actually, effectively saved their meat. It saved them money. It saved them from their meat that they had to provide for their family from going bad. And the salt literally penetrated the meat, and it changed the very nature of the meat. You following me? See, this is, the, this is what I believe Jesus had in view here when he said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt, again, was a very valuable commodity. Friends, you and I, not because of our own good deeds, but because of Christ in us, we are valuable, and we are a valuable preservative to our culture. We're valuable because you are the temple of the living God. We're not valuable because we have some sort of worth in and of ourselves. We are valuable because we have, if you're in Christ, the very Spirit of God residing in us. And we are valuable to the culture. We are the only thing keeping and preserving our culture. Now, when he says you're salt of the earth, if, when he's saying that you are a preservative to the earth, this presupposes that the earth, something's wrong with the earth. I think we can all agree on that, right? If, we're, if there needs to be a preservative to keep the earth from spiraling downward, that means the earth is spiraling downward, and that the earth is full of death, obviously, but the earth is full of immorality, idol worship, self-deprecation of humanity. So the earth we know, and not just the physical earth, we're talking about uh, the world's system. We're talking about man's system. That's what makes the world corrupt is because from the beginning, uh, Genesis 6-5, Jesus said that every intent of man's heart is only evil continually. And then he repeated that after the fall in Genesis 8:12, where he said man's thoughts are evil from his youth. And that's the problem that we have in today's society is that we have men and women who are full of sin and they only have evil thoughts continually. And that has corrupted the whole world. And Jesus is saying here that the world is, is corrupt, evil, immoral, and you are the one that are preserving it. You, not because of your righteous good acts, but because of him working in you, you are the one that is preserving the world 
from going into even more death and decay. Just think about our country right now, friends. If you were to take the Christian worldview out of our country, when we see the attacks on Christianity, when we see the attack on God's order of marriage, when we see the attack on God's, uh, God's creation of life inside the womb, when we see the, the, the sin coming out of the darkness, and now it's even flaunted, as years ago it was at least blushed at and, and hidden because our culture understood that those things were inept, uh, inherently wrong. Imagine taking the Christianity worldview and the true church out of our country right now. Just gone. What would this, how quick would this country spiral? Abortion on demand would happen tomorrow. In every state. You would have the most egregious, sickest sin that you can even think of begin to be not only legal and tolerated, but encouraged. You would have ultimately a state of anarchy. Because you would have no foundation, no truths to go by, and whoever's in power is going to call the shots. See, I believe that we are the only thing that's keeping this world from rotting to the very core. God gives authorities for restraining sin. God gives authorities for restraining sin, and God gives jurisdictions for those authorities. The church is one authority that God gives to restrain man's sin. The government is another authority that God gives to restrain man's sin. The family is another authority that God gives to restrain sin. Man's conscience is another authority that God gives. God gives everyone a conscience, and that's another way that God restrains sin. Well, if you have those authorities functioning without a Christian worldview, those all crumble, and you have absolutely no more restraint upon sin in this country and in this world. I believe much of the blame we have for where our country is today is the Christian church. And not the name of the church. Christians, okay? Because remember, the church, the ecclesia, is the called out ones. I believe much of what we have to blame on where we are in our culture is because Christians have totally abdicated themselves from impacting the culture with the gospel and impacting the culture with the essential elements of Christianity. It's so easy for us to get inside our own comfort zones of Christianity and compartmentalize it, is it not? To keep it in our Sundays, to keep it inside of our home and our families and not do what salt was meant to do and it was meant to penetrate. It was meant to change the very nature of of whatever it touches. And that's what we as Christians are called to do in whatever context God has given you. You know, you may all automatically think, well, that means i got to move somewhere overseas to take the gospel. No, wherever God has placed you in the context he's given you, that's where you're to be salt and light in that context. 
You are the salt of the earth. And then he says, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Now, that word tasteless, I think, is why many of us think, okay, Jesus must just be talking about the salt and how it flavors a food. And they did use salt to season foods. But that word where it says become tasteless, that word in the Greek means to be made useless. It even means to be made foolish. It's used by Paul in his letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, where God has made foolish the things of the world. That word made foolish to be, uh, to be cast down, to be made into nothing, it, it can and has been used to be made tasteless, okay? But it also, as I said, can be used to be made ineffective, to be made useless. And that's what I think uh, a better way to understand the text here is that. And I believe this interpretation that I'm giving you today as, as salt being a preservation, a motive to preserve more than just to make something tasty, it fits in with the very next passage of being salt or to be light in the world. Where Jesus says, don't hide your light, it should be shining on a hill. What does light do? It penetrates darkness, right? I believe that is, fits within the idea that salt penetrates something that's dying and preserves it. Uh, you can make the argument that this only is referring to seasoning food or making something tastier. Uh, but I think Jesus had a greater meaning than just that. So Jesus says if salt loses its primary elements, if salt becomes useless, if it's made foolish, how can it be made salty again? Jesus is saying if salt loses its primary elements, which make it effective, what good is it? See, the very nature of salt is what seasons food or what preserves the food. But if you take away the essential element of salt, what use is it? It's basically like having dirt. Basically like having dirt. Now, how can this be, how can this be, um, how can this actually happen? So, salt in its purest form, as I mentioned before, cannot lose its saltiness. You set salt on a shelf, as long as it doesn't get wet, uh, it's always going to be salty. Because as I mentioned, uh, it is an ionic compound and it's not going to break down, it's going to be durable, right? So how can Jesus say, well, if it's made useless or or whatever, uh, how can it be made tasteless? Well, again, if you go back to how they harvested salt, uh, back then, they would literally, they had a number of ways to do it. But salt was everywhere. You had the Dead Sea. Uh, one of the ways that they would do it is they would, they would collect the salt and they would skim the salt and get as much of the salt as they could without getting any of the other minerals or substances. Uh, the Dead Sea had some other contaminations that if they were to get into the salt, then it would make the salt, it would render it useless because the contaminations are so high, there's so much other junk in there that the salt is not tasty And the salt doesn't work as a preservative because you have all the other contaminants mixed in with it. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. If salt is is made useless, how can it be made salty again? Another way that they would harvest salt, they would harvest it in a jar. And if inside that jar it would get wet, which it would do, well, the minerals would stay. 
but the salt would get dissolved in the water. And then when they dump out the water, then you have a lot of minerals and other substances, and you don't have any salt. So that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here, is, is, is if you are um, contaminated, if you have a lot of other extra junk that's, that's dividing your heart, uh, you're made useless. But salt in its purest form, I believe Jesus is talking about, is made to penetrate, is made to, as Jesus is making his disciples, Christianity is to be a penetrating power in this world to preserve it. If you think about from the time Jesus said these words to now, can we say that that is the case? Can we say that Christianity has penetrated the world and helped preserve it? What about all the egregious acts that I mentioned at the beginning by so-called Christians? Well, most of those, if you do some research, most of those can be easily refuted that those were not true Christians. Many of them were not even Christians. But what has Christianity done? What is Christianity, if someone asked you that, what good has Christianity done in our culture, in our world, in our country? There's a pretty long list. Now, I'm going to name just a few of them. First of all, the remnants that we have and the blessings that we enjoy as a constitutional republic in our country was birthed from a Christian worldview, was birthed out of Christianity. The Declaration of Independence was a Christian document. The Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all of these enshrined the idea, not only did they have Christian principles from the Word of God, but all of these enshrined the idea that there was a higher law that was above man's law, and that is God's law. But that, that, that's not where that idea started. You actually go back centuries before in the 13th century, and there's a document called the Magna Carta. If you've never heard of it, the Magna Carta came from England in the 13th century. When the English were on the brink of a civil war, the king was essentially politically forced into a position where he had to sign this document called the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta is referred to as the foundation of the freedom of the individual against arbitrary authority of the despot or the tyrant. This is where the modern idea that we have in our country first originated from, was the Magna Carta. The rights that were enshrined in this document, and later is what many of our founding fathers of our nation used in the Declaration of Independence, these rights enshrined the idea that our rights are granted to us by our Lord. That they're not rights that are given or derived from the government, but that they're rights that are given to us by our Creator, God. And that the civil magistrate's job is to protect those rights that are granted by God. This was a Christian idea that comes from the very words of God. This Christian-led effort changed the very nature of the earth, has it not? You take a look at the earth, the kingdoms, the nations back in the 13th century, 14th century, 15th century, and how the Magna Carta, how it started, and where we see today, we still have 
tyrannical governments, but has not that Christian idea changed the very face of the world? I believe it has. So what else can we see in this world that we can thank Christianity for? Well, how about the indictment of slavery, okay, that it was a Christian thing? Well, who led the efforts to abolish slavery, both in England and in America? They were Christians. William Wilberforce in England and many in the United States. I was just reading more about it last night. On uh, There's a man by the name of John Carter, I believe his name was. I just read this last night. Uh, it's not in my notes, but he was an abolitionist, a slavery abolitionist here in America in the 1800s. And the Christian undertones from this man, he, was, he, was, he led a, a slavery revolt. Slavery is to rebel and to revolt against slavery. And then he had a warrant out for his death. And the Christians were calling on the church to pray for him. And there was this one poster that said, it had his name and said, please pray for him. And I, I should have copied it. Look, um, look it up when you go home because it, it, it indicted those who were advocating for slavery of being anti-God, anti-gospel. And they were, they were imploring the church to pray for, for this man who was being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He was being persecuted because he was taking his Christian worldview and not leaving it inside the church and taking it and penetrating the culture for the glory of God. Uh, and that's William Wilberforce. Uh, he was saved while he was in Parliament, and his Christian worldview would not let him keep his Christianity inside of his home, and he made it his life ambition to bring about the abolishment of slavery. What else has Christianity done? Well, how about education? Did you know that most of the founding universities in Europe and in America were founded by who? By Christians mainly for the teaching of the preaching of the word of God. But along with that came the arts, came the sciences, came all of the, the education that we see have gone so, has gone so astray uh, lately. It was started by Christians. How about languages? Christians have been the leading force, force in translating languages and codifying languages from many tribal and primitive cultures. How about our judicial system? Due process. It's a Christian idea. Isn't that a blessing to the world? Due process. How about our own Fifth Amendment right not to self-incriminate? That is a Christian idea that came from Christians. How about hospitals? Did you know the first hospital in 369 AD was started by a Christian? And the modern movement of the hospitals was a Christian idea and a Christian thing. The list could go on. This is just a little taste of what Christianity has done and how Christianity has penetrated our culture and our world and changed the very nature for the glory of God. But not only this, more importantly, friends, Christians have gone outside the four walls of the church and sparked great revivals throughout the ages. Everything I mentioned up until now is all uh, physical things, right? But more importantly, Christians have led and God has used Christians to get outside of the church to lead great revivals. Uh, like the Reformation, like the Great Awakening, like what he did with his apostles in the early church. These men were not afraid 
of facing a cosmic clash with the culture. In fact, when we are bold in being like the penetrating power of salt right upon the culture, you can promise that there will be a cosmic clash with the culture. It is absolutely inevitable. And those who started great revivals and great reformations and great awakenings, they were not afraid of coming face to face with a culture of death and a culture that hates God. Now to show you an illustration of this, you can turn to Acts 17. uh, This is Paul on his second missionary journey. He went into Europe, and he's in this region of Macedonia, bringing the good news to bear. And you have Lydia, who is the first convert in Europe, in chapter 16. Paul goes into Philippi, where there's not even a synagogue. We know that because he doesn't go to a synagogue. He goes to a river, supposing there would be people that were praying. And there were. There were women there praying. So they, they didn't have the, the ten men, Jews, to start a synagogue in Philippi. So he starts preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. And then what happens? He lands himself in jail. Paul does. Uh, because he's coming face to face with the culture. Then he saves the jailer and his whole household. And then he's told to go home. They're afraid of this man. They release him and say, go in peace. And what does Paul say? Paul says, no. These men unjustly throw me in jail without due process because he was a Roman citizen. You have them come publicly take me out. So everybody can see, I'm, I'm adding, so everybody can see that they did wrong. And so he leaves Philippi and he goes to Thessalonica. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now, if you look at a map, it's kind of going down the coast in the Macedonia region. And he's at Thessalonica, and it says in verse 1, Now, when they had traveled through Amphilippus, um, Amphilippus and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and reasoned three Sabbaths, or for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer And rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city's authority, shouting, here's their indictment. These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now, if you look there at verse Six, where it says in the NASB, these men have upset the world. Your version might say, turn the world upside down. And they've come here. Their reputation preceded them. They weren't trying to be, as I heard one brother say this week, they weren't trying to be sugar to the world. They weren't trying to be sweet and attractive to the world. They were being salt 
to the world. They were penetrating the culture for the glory of Christ. Their reputation preceded them. It says these people have turned the whole world upside down. And now they've come here to do also. The word there in the Greek means to upset or to stir up, to excite, or literally to turn upside down. And why? What was the reason? Well, they said they, they were acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Do you see there how the gospel was coming and it was impacting and it was intersecting the culture? Because now they're bringing in Caesar. Paul and the apostles were penetrating the culture with the message of allegiance, submission, worship, not to Caesar, but to Christ. Caesar was not king, their message was. But Jesus Christ, who was crucified and rose again, he was king. They were being salt in the world. Now you've got to remember in the Roman culture, for the most part, the Romans didn't care what gods were worshipped. As long as Caesar was worshipped, and as long as the knee was bowed down to Caesar, they even let Jews kind of have their own little way and have their own little trials, and they had the Sanhedrin, and, and they would even allow the Jews to sort of self-govern in a certain way and have their little God as long as they bowed the knee to Caesar, which they did, did they not? Do you remember when they were yelling, crucify, crucify? Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. They were okay with their little religion, but they were going to give honor to Caesar because they did not want and didn't have the courage to be salt and to impact the culture and come face to face with the culture like Paul was doing. See, they didn't care who they worshipped or what they worshipped as long as it was acknowledged that Caesar was king. Caesar was king. And here, these Jews, these unlearned Jews are coming and say, no, Caesar's not king. Jesus is king. And friends, that's how we become salt and light in our world. That's how we penetrate the culture because now we have a so-called Caesar. And that, I believe, is a status type of government that we're in. We have that the government is God and whatever government says, we do. And we've been conditioned so long uh, to act that way, to have our little church as long as it doesn't come face to face and clash with the higher authority, and that's the authority of our government. We need to be proclaiming the message that Jesus is not only king of the church, he is king of the world, and he is king of everybody outside of this church. And everyone must bow the knee to Jesus Christ. So, how can salt lose its saltiness, as Jesus says? How can we be rendered ineffective? How can we be diluted? As I mentioned earlier, the essential elements of Christianity, if you're a Christian, you'll never lose those essential elements. If you're truly a Christian, you're always going to be poor in spirit. You're always going to have, in some form or another, those essential elements of Christianity. But Jesus is saying, if, if you lose that, how can it be made salty again? There is a way that we can lose our effectiveness 
in the world. And, and the picture of the salt and the contaminants gives us a really good idea on how we lose our saltiness, how we lose our effectiveness in the culture. So there's a few things that I'd like to point out. How can we lose our saltiness? First, I want to ask you, are you salt? Are you salt in this lost and dying world? Are you taking the message of Christianity outside the four walls and impacting our culture for the glory of God? We lose our saltiness when we allow the contaminants of the world to dilute our purity. That's the first thing. We allow the contaminants of the world. This could be sin, but it could also be things that are not sin. They're just unhealthy desires, unhealthy habits and appetites. Allowing those things to come into our life can, can allow our purity to be diluted and we can lose our effectiveness in the world. Number two, we lose our saltiness when we allow the worries of the world to render us useless. When we allow the worries and the cares of this world to grow so much, we lose our effectiveness as Christians. We get our mind off Christ. We get our mind off of uh, the e eternality that, our, that we have and that our friends have. We get our mind off of our calling and our our mission in the church when we allow worries of the world to penetrate our hearts number three fear of man more than fear of god when we fear men or women when we fear how someone might react or how someone might think about us we're basically just like that useless salt thrown on the ground to be trodden over by men we are not going to be effective for the glory of Christ when we fear man. Number four, and, I, and this often happens inside Reformed circles, when we have a good understanding of the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God can actually be a reason that makes us ineffective and a reason that we lose our saltiness when we presume upon the sovereignty of God. What do I mean by that? When we think in our minds, well, God is sovereign, and he's going to do it, and he's going to use someone, but not me. When we presume upon the sovereignty of God, we lose our effectiveness as Christians. Because we are responsible. We're responsible to be salt. God is sovereign and God will have his way and God will execute his will. He will do all that he desires. At the same time, God uses ordinary men and women like us to accomplish his will. We cannot presume upon the sovereignty of God and say, well, somebody else will do it. Because you know what? You're right, but you're still responsible to God. So I want to conclude by reminding you of our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, where Peter gives us his confession of faith, confession of who Jesus is, Christ the Son of God. In verse 18, Jesus says this, 
I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it here. The gates of hell will not overpower it. When you have that picture in your mind, and the gates, the gate of hell, who is on the offense? Who is on the defense? When you have a gate, you're playing defense. We need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that the enemy is on the defense. Even though he is like a lion prowling around whom he can devour, we need to be reminded, friends, brothers and sisters, that we are on the offense, that God is on the offense, and he is using people like us to penetrate the culture with the gospel and for the glory of God to make it effective and to bring about God's rule and reign upon this earth. We need to be reminded, friends, that God is moving, that God is living, that God is building his kingdom, as Jesus said. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is active, God is moving, and we need to be reminded of that. We need to be confident, we need to be encouraged that when we are salt, when we take our Christianity outside of our lives, outside of our house outside of our church and when we penetrate our culture with the gospel which is the law and the good news the grace of god when we bring that upon the culture we need to be reminded that god is with us that god is actually using us to further and to build his kingdom and that ought to bring us into a state of confidence not in ourselves confidence in the god who has commissioned us who has sent us into all the world to preach the gospel. Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is reigning right now, and he will reign, as the scripture says, until he puts all his enemies under his feet. That's what we are. We're salt. We are salt to penetrate the culture, and God is using us to accomplish his will. There's a man in in the 18th century named Samuel Melody, he was an English Reformed Baptist preacher, which there wasn't a lot of ba- Reformed Baptist preachers back in that, those days. And oftentimes, uh, in some cases, they were persecuted because Baptists were lumped with the Anabaptists and the Reformed Baptists. There wasn't a whole lot in the 18th century, so this was 1700s. Uh, Samuel Melody wrote hundreds of hymns. And you have to write hymns if your last name is Melody. But um, nonetheless... He wrote this one hymn that's really been my battle cry hymn this week, listening to it. It's a short hymn. It's been rendered in different ways, but here's some of, the, some of the lyrics. And it really, he had a true understanding of what it means to be salt in the culture, to be salt in the world. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Glory, hallelujah. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. Glory, hallelujah. He says, He lives to crush the fiends of hell. He lives and doth within me dwell. Then the chorus is, shout on, press on, we're gaining ground. Glory, hallelujah. The dead's alive and the lost is found. Glory, hallelujah. We need to not have a defeatist mindset. Even though we see where the culture is and the state of the world and the state of our country, we need not to have the mindset of oh woe is us oh woe are Christians what is God going to do why is he doing this 
We need to not have that mindset, brothers and sisters, but we need to have the mindset that God is building his kingdom, and God always wins. As the words of the hymn say, shout on, press on, we are gaining ground. Are we not gaining ground? Is the gospel in more parts of the world than it's ever been? Yeah, it has. Amen. So let us be encouraged. Let that spark the flame to not be ashamed of the gospel, to not be ashamed to stand upon the absolute truth of God's word and take it into the culture, take it into your workplaces, take it into your neighborhood, take it into your friendships, take it in everywhere you go. We ought to be gaining ground for the glory of God. We ought to be taking the things that the world has and we ought to, we ought to be making them for the glory of God, like the reformers did with education, like things have been done throughout the ages for the glory of God, and all glory will go to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much that you, you're worthy to be praised. Lord, we thank you that you promised to build your church, and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. Lord, I pray that you would encourage your people today. Encourage us, God, to press on, pray on, shout on, because you are gaining ground, Lord. Help us not to walk by what we see, but God, help us to walk by the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to take these essential elements in the Beatitudes, God, and, and take them into the, into the culture and the context that you've given us, God. Help us, Lord, we need your help, God, to, to fear you more and to fear men less. May you be glorified in our words and our deeds in this culture. Father, we pray that Christ would be glorified. Lord, that we will not stop, God, and we would have the fortitude to, to move ahead, God, to go and to make you known into all the world. May it start, God, with where you've placed us today. We thank you, Father, for the men and women who have gone before us, who have been salt in this world. I thank you, God, as we come, a, uh, come upon the season where we celebrate the Reformation, that you used feeble men and women, God, to be salt, to penetrate the culture, to take the message that you gave them and to herald it even when it clashed with the culture, even when it clashed with those who claimed to be of the true church. We thank you, Father, for those courageous men and women that have gone before us and lord that that we would have that the courage that christ had father that we would have the courage and god i i feel like it all comes back to fearing you more than man help us god to grow to grow in that fear of you and to diminish and to kill off father the the worry of what others will think or what others might do, knowing that you will provide the grace in the moment. 
We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.